Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. Not to tell you something, people. Uh, I want to tell you about my latest sponsor. It's Blowfish for Hangovers. It's a great company, man. I'm telling you, especially during football season, because people are you're drinking, you're watching your college team, your pro team, you're drinking, you have to get up early. And I'm telling you, Blowfish for Hangovers, this stuff is a lifesaver. After a big night, just wake up, drop two Blowfish tablets in water, and drink it down. It's super easy. It tastes great. It has this lemon flavor, and it's recognized by the FDA, so you know it works. So here's what you do. Go to 4hangovers.com. That's F-O-R hangovers.com. That's 4hangovers.com, F-O-R. And use the promo code COOPER to get 20% off your order. Or just look for it in uh, your pain reliever aisle pain reliever aisle at CBS. So if you hate being hungover, you got to get some blowfish hangover. So anyway, we have a great show today. Uh, my gentleman, we had to push it back a little bit because my guest had a meeting, which he said went well. And my guest is Rob Long. How you doing, Rob? Doing very well. I love that uh, blowfish stuff. I got to get some of that. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of my sponsors. It's uh, it's it's, oh, it's great stuff. So, are, are you are you a football fan? Uh, uh, well, yeah, but that's not why I I I, so I enjoy my cocktails. I'll put it that way. I do enjoy my cocktails, and you get to be a certain age, and there's only so much you can do. I tell you, well, what's what's your cocktail of choice? Well, I'm a bourbon drinker, so anything with bourbon. But I, I prefer bourbon, you know, on the rocks. But uh, I'll start the meal with a drink. With a cocktail, if it's like if it's not too sweet, that's that's the way to go. So I got I got to ask you. I, I know I know you went to an Ivy League school. Where did you grow up at? I couldn't find it. I was doing my research, and it said where you went to college. It didn't say where you grew up. I sort of grew up uh, kind of all over. I was born in Baltimore, and then we lived in Europe for a little bit. And then we, when we moved back to the states, we uh, my dad was in the electronics business, so we moved to the Silicon Valley, to the Bay Area. And then uh, when I went away to school, I went to Massachusetts, and they sort of followed. My mom was born there, so. My mom and dad moved back to Massachusetts, where at that point was a big, thriving tech area, and um, and then uh, so I guess New England, kind of New England. I kind of I guess that would be the fairest way to say it's the place I spent the most time. Now, when did you get interested in writing and entertainment? I mean, was it a young age where you fascinated by TV, or did you younger? Did you want to be something else? I mean, we never sit there and say, "Hey, we want to be a." TV writer, screenwriter when we were a little kid, but when did you, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not like, hey, I'm five years old, I'm going to write, you know, a Although now, I think now people do, I think it's now, <laughs> there are young people in college, like, I want to be a TV writer. Back back then, it was no, I mean, I, look, I, I have uh, no other skills, right, so I, when in college, I was an English major, and I didn't even bother to take an econ class, so that uh, I was going to get hired as a bank, at a bank to be an investment banker, like everybody else, you know, the law, what was the law at the time, was you must be an investment banker or a lawyer. Uh, and I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer because that seemed really, really hard. Um, and so I was just taking a playwriting class and writing funny little sketches. And uh, a friend of mine and I were to play together and we started writing little skits together after rehearsal and stuff. And we put on two plays and I thought, oh, this, this is fun. Like, it, if you have ever written something and, and performed it or seen it performed in front of an audience and had that audience laugh, it's like... Um, it's like a drug, you know, you're hooked. There's just no, even if you're not consciously saying, as I wasn't at the time, this is what I want to do, I knew that was what I was drawn to because I'd been in a position of sitting in the back of a theater watching a play that I had written uh, being performed in front of people and they, and they laugh. And you think, well, that is just amazing. That is just amazing. Were you a funny kid? I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't think I was like funny, funny, but I, I um, what was that old line from Eugene Levy says when he's, in uh, waiting for Guppy, because I was not the class clown, but I I sat near the class clown right. and I studied him. Um, 
No, I was not. Uh, I don't think I was funny. Funny, but I knew that I could talk, and that was the. That's really the first threshold. Can you talk? And and that's what comedy writing really is. It's an elevated form of, of, of talking funny. Um, and I just feel like that was like when I when I announced put it this way when I announced to people this is what I was going to do. No one said, "Are you nuts?" Okay. They said, "Oh yeah, yeah, I can see that." So so you graduate Yale and your your degrees in English. Yes. And so very useful. And so when you graduate, you decide then to go to UCLA, or what do you decide you're going to do when you get out of college? Do you sit there and go, I'm going to pursue this career? Because, you know, you're graduating from the, one of the best colleges in the country. I mean, you, you could walk into yeah. a, a lot of jobs with an English degree from there and get some kind of job. Yeah, but the thing about it is, like, you – even now it's the case, but, but back then it was still, still the case – you get out of college. The first thing you want to do is go back to college. You want to get. I, I don't like it. It's cold outside. I like not having to do anything and sleeping late and having zero responsibility. Right. That that that's what every college kid loves, and I loved it. So the first thing I thought was like, where can I go to another school to learn this trade? And that was film school. So I, you know, packed up my Subaru and I drove out to L.A. and went to film school. And for a while, I was in film school. About a year and a half, I was like writing movies. Because that was like during the those like early '90s, late '80s, early '90s, when the movies were like a, a buy the book cop and a crazy do anything cop, and and um, I thought those were fun, and so I was trying to write those, but I really wasn't very good at that. Um, I was better at like I liked writing long dialogue with people, funny dialogue in, between characters, and so I was in this uh, writing class. Um, well, you know, I had two classes a week. Really, this thing was incredibly, incredibly, uh, you know, luxurious. And I, I, we were someone was reading. We were reading one of my scenes. And he had bringing up a, a, a piece of material to read out loud to the class. And this girl in the class, who I think was now I realize was trying to be really mean and insulting, but at the time, of course, I didn't know that. She she said uh, um, about my work. She said, it just feels like television. She said with that kind of sneer. And I thought, oh well, I was too stupid to know she was insulting me. I thought, oh oh, maybe I should write television. Okay, I'll do that. I mean, if I got you didn't say, this feels like Budapest, you know, something or other, I would have moved to Budapest. But um, Budapest haiku. But that, yeah. And what I, yeah, exactly. What I discovered about uh, television was they constantly need material. They're always looking for material. Um, it's a, it was a weird business where it wasn't closed, but everybody was so busy, they didn't really know how to get new people in it. And if you showed up and you were fresh meat and you kind of could put two words together, and you were reasonably funny, they figured, well, you can learn. You can learn. You'll learn how to do this job. And that's really what it is. It's a trade, and you learn how to do the trade on the job. And so you're just looking for that first big break. So you, you get out of school. Now, how do you get to get that big break? What do you have to do? I mean, did you constantly write spec scripts? Did you get an agent right away? And if you did, yeah. I mean, it's so hard to get an agent back then, they said. You know, I mean, how did that all that process take place? It was much easier then. I got to say, anybody listening to this thinking, okay, well, this is how I'm going to do it for myself. It, it's all different now. It's much harder in a lot of ways. Uh, and in some ways, it's much easier. Don't take this as a um, as a as a guide, your guide to becoming you know uh, big in Hollywood because it's it's different now. But back then, um, uh, at eleven o'clock and eleven thirty on Channel Five PM uh, in, in KTLA, I think it was, they showed Cheers reruns and Taxi reruns, and so I watched those religiously and wrote a couple specs. Um, and asked around, and someone said, oh, yeah, this is Agent, she's really good, and she represents only young writers, here's her name. And so I wrote her a letter, and I said, would you like to read my specs? And she said, yeah, she called me back, her sister called me back, said, fine, send them. 
And then she had it for like two months, didn't read them. And then uh, when I called her to ask her about it, she yelled at me on the phone and then read them and then brought us in. I was writing with a partner at the time, brought us in for a meeting and then yelled at us both for a little bit about, you know, our names and how stupid it is. Because we put, used our full names on the, on the title page. So what was your full and name? She's like, it's Robert C.B. Long. I have two middle initials. She okay. looked at me like, are you fucking crazy? Are you, oh, yeah, sorry. I don't know if you could swear. I you can. You can. That is literally what she said. That is literally <laughs> what she said to me. And uh, I was like, she said, do I use that term? Should I call you that right now? Like, no, I'm, I, I go by Rob. She goes, okay, then Rob. Then you go by Rob. Change the title page, <laughs> god damn it. And um, so I did, and that was that. And she was at a small agency, but it was a very powerful one at the time. And um, they represented pretty much every show on TV, especially Cheers. That was their big hit. And so she called, you know, we signed, and it was right before Christmas. And then right after Christmas, she called up and said, put on a clean pair of pants. You got a you meeting at Cheers. And that was that. What but, is, but this could never be repeated. This will never ever happen again. No one listen to the story and think, "Oh, it can happen like that." It can't. Well, you, you think? You. I mean, you, you, you're sitting there. You're going into one of the top, you know, five sitcoms ever, and it, it was going for a while. I mean, that must. What were you feeling like when you're going into that meeting? Well, the, the, the thing about the meeting is, you just kind of you don't really think anything. You're like, okay, I'm going to meet the right... You don't really know what to imagine because I've never met a comedy writer before who's professional, so I don't really know. But you go in and you meet the writers and the producers who are the same thing in TV. And first of all, you uh, the, the first thing that happens is you, you, you suddenly discover that you don't... You've never met anyone funny. You think you know funny people and you think you're funny... But these guys are at another level. These guys are making jokes, offhanded jokes, that you've never heard before and that you're, you're embarrassed to be laughing so hard. You're just, you're just, you're, it's just insane. Uh, and, then, and then, because we started there, in, when I guess they were on a week hiatus, which means they weren't in production, you get an idea for the first week that it's just this office thing, that you sit in an office and nothing is connected to anything. It's just an office job. Uh, and then... You show up and they go, oh, no, today's the table reading. The cast is going to read the, read the script for this week to produce. And then you walk into a, a conference room above the soundstage, and suddenly there's the cast of Cheers. And they're all there. They're on sweats or whatever. You know, nobody's looking their best, but they're all just there. And you think, oh, that's what this This is a TV show that mil- tens of millions of people will watch. That and That's the first time you think to yourself, man, this is a big deal. This is something, something real is happening to me right now. And I'm not prepared for it. Well, I would, I would think it would be like, you know, when you walk into that, to that atmosphere and that's the surroundings, it would be like a minor league a baseball player jumping from AAA to major leagues and all of a sudden you're with an all-star lineup. Yeah, but I wouldn't say minor league. That, that's too much, gives me too much credit. Little league, <laughs> uh, you know, peewee league, a t-ball. Like, I mean, you know, the, 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 the issue is like, like the question is, has anyone, had anyone before I walked into Cheers ever paid me anything to be funny? And the answer is no, not even a $10. So suddenly I'm at this level. But the thing about it was that you're, the business was designed for that. It was a, they expected that. They didn't expect you to have any, any experience or really to know what you're doing. They were just hiring you on a 10-week contract to, to, to learn. And like you're, in, you're suddenly in the room, the writer's room anyway, with – these insanely talented, gifted writers, uh, 
And if you're smart, you shut your mouth and you listen, and you listen to the way they do things. Not not just the old pros. We had a bunch of old pros working for us who had done you know iconic television episodes, like episodes of TV that people still talk about. Uh, Mary Tyler Moore and, and Taxi and Bob Newhart's show and uh, I got the Dick Van Dyke show, Jack Parr. I mean, I think the history of TV, but also the young guys who've been there for a while. I mean, there there were two young guys who were a little bit older than me. Um, who was still the most talented writers I've ever met. I mean, they're still, I learned a whole lot from them. So you know, if you're smart, you you just, you take the money and you shut up and you don't make waves and you listen and you only open your mouth when you have something really, 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 really useful to contribute, like a joke. <laughs> and then you hope that that joke, that people laugh at it and it goes in the script and if it goes in the script, it's the best moment of your career that first joke so you get the first joke in do you remember your first joke i you know what someone someone uh my friend tom anderson who was, who was there was a little bit he was the, one of the younger guys older than me he um he mentioned this joke but i don't think it was mine so i don't really i don't really but he says no it was yours i remember it was your first big joke and it was i think i think frazier crane was uh it was a B story. He was trying to lose weight, and he was being uh, worked out. Someone was—I think maybe it was Sam Malone—was going to operate as his personal trainer for a while, and had him doing sit-ups on the pool table. And as he's trying to sit up, and he's trying to do a crunch or whatever it is, you know, with his knees bent, and he's kind of trying to lean forward. It's hard, and he's, he's groaning and moaning. And then he says, "Can you see the baby's head yet?" <laughs> and. Tom Anderson says that was my joke, which I'm happy to take credit for because it's pretty funny, but I don't think it was. So so you, you're writing in the season now. Do you know at the end of the season if they're going to ask you back or not, or, do you, or is that in limbo? You aren't sure. That's in limbo. When you're young, when you're starting out, that's really in limbo. And, and, and the reality is, like, you, you, if you pitch in 10 weeks, if you're new and you pitch one joke that goes in or one fix of a story or a script uh, – you're batting a thousand like that that you're the most valuable person if you talk too much or you run your mouth or you have a bunch of dumb stuff to say and you're taking up time or oxygen that's how you get kicked out of the room you know uh, you, you just want you, you just want to be my my the my, my first boss there was another brilliantly just insanely brilliantly funny guy it was just funny ordering lunch just could like crazy uh his name was bill steinkellner and he his advice was uh, you you need to help me achieve my career goal, and my career goal is to go home. <laughs> so, you got to get me into my car, and meaning when I'm, we're stuck on something and we don't have a fix or joke for the end of a scene or something, if you come up with that and that means I get to go to my car, then you are my favorite employee. And that's one of those things. Like I, I remember, I remember actually when later in all the subsequent years running TV shows and having staffs of my own. I, I I always try to tell that to the young writers, you know, in as nice a way as possible. It's like your job is to get me into my car, um, and that's a hard that's a hard thing to do. So after that first season, you come back for the second season. Uh, for you, it's your second season, and now is that when you start getting your own writing assignments? Yeah, well, we got one for the first season, and then the second season, you know, they, they sort of divvy them up. They divvy up the scripts, and you start writing scripts. And, like, you know, you write them. You, you, you all work out the story together, and then you all work out the, 
twists and turns together. And like you're basically sitting in a room and you're what we call breaking a story, and you leave with like you know twenty pages of notes and jokes and like scene. Like you you can leave with a script basically if you're a, a, a rookie, you think basically the script's written, but it's not really because there's all sorts of stuff you still have to do. But you, you leave the room with a whole lot of help from your colleagues, and then you go and you sort of assemble it to an outline, and then you turn that in, and then the, out, the colleagues do the whole process over again with that outline. And then you go away for a week or two, and you write the draft, and you come back, and they give you notes on the second draft. So that's, that's usually how these drafts get written. When you have time in the beginning, when there's pre-production and you're not shooting shows, or in the early part of the season where you've got a bunch of shows back, a bunch of scripts backlogged, you're ready to go. Near the end, though, you know, when you start talking about Thanksgiving eats up two weeks, and then Christmas eats up two weeks, and and you start running out of time, and you start running out of script. Sometimes you're like, okay, on Wednesday morning we're going to sit and we're going to break a story, and you're going to write it, and we're going to read it the following Wednesday. And that's usually the last three or four of every season, or just kind of you're just two steps ahead of the sheriff. That's that's just so crazy because you're so used to the uh, the time, and then all of a sudden you're under the gun. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But that's at the same time like. If you really know the show and these characters, I mean, you know, the characters of Cheers were indelible. Like everybody knew, everyone who watched that show knew who those characters were. You know what a Cheers episode is. You know what a Carla line or a Norm line is. Like, it's not, you know, these are people that you know. And it's, it, it, it you're not inventing, the, you're, you're, you're not inventing the wheel and you shouldn't be, you know, you, you should be. Uh, telling a story about these characters that uh, audiences have been watching and loving for you know eight, ten, twelve years, eleven years, anyway. Now, in your in ninety, I just read about your background. When did you become executive producer, and then how does that happen? Well, what happens is like a show's been going on for so long, it kind of runs itself. But you, 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 everybody who goes rises to the top, you just kind of promote. And they want to do their own show. And so they're always promoting people, and they're all they always need new blood. And so the four young guys was me and my writing partner, and these two guys, Dan Shannon and Tom Anderson. We ran it together the last two seasons. I think the last two seasons. And um, and what was fun about it was that we were still enthusiastic. Like we, for us, like I mean, that, the show st- premiered. I was sixteen. I was in high school. I was the youngest, but like even you know, I guess the oldest is probably O'Shannon. Maybe even he wasn't that much older than me. So like for us, we still felt like this incredible enthusiasm and joy about these this bar and these characters, and the, they could do anything. And so you know, we were just this young blood that uh, they they gave us a fancy title. But the truth is, the show itself ran itself. The show was incredibly, incredibly uh, well thought out and well developed and well loved so it was not it was only we, we can do that much damage you know so so when it was the final season coming did you know the final season was coming and then did you no. did, okay so how did that happen and then you must have felt pressure to wrap it up right because as you said everybody knew these characters i mean honestly if you if you went to a bar now and you said to someone yeah. who was over 40 hey that reminds me of cliff and they said who you'd want to punch him in the face because you, because they this wouldn't one be stu- they wouldn't of, be American. Yes, yeah. one of the stupidest people ever. How did you find out the show was going off, and then how well, did you sit there and figure out how you're going to wrap things up? Well, luckily for us, like wrapping it up, it was not our show. We were running it, but it was created and, and you know still owned and I mean supervised in some way by the the brothers uh, Glenn and Les Charles, who are these sort of genius writers who created the show. 
And we didn't spend much time with them while we were running it because they were, you know, they they were smart. They said this. They had already established a policy of stepping away from the material, so they weren't. You know, they were burnt out too from these characters. They did the first five years, and they sort of stepped back. Um, and we found out because Ted Danson came into our office and sat us down and said, "Listen, I've been thinking all weekend, and I just don't think I want to do a twelfth season, and I want like I want to tell you guys first before anybody." And you know, we knew he was kind of going through some marriage trouble and a sort of life change and stuff. And and he is, by the way, the sweetest, nicest person you will ever meet. He, he, it's hard to believe that somebody that gifted can be that decent a person, but he's so decent. He really wanted to make sure we were okay with it. He really like he was racked with guilt about it, like you know, because he knew that it probably meant the show was over, and he was basically putting all these people out of work. I mean, he, he's like he carries these things. He carried them very heavily at the time, which was really un fair for him I and mean, he had enough stuff going on in his life um and so we're like oh, okay well i guess um i guess then we should think about how to end the season and we you know i we knew it was a hit show and we knew it was a big deal but we were still pretty young so we didn't know what exactly the ramifications of that announcement that he made sitting in our office you know eating a bagel but i don't we didn't know what the ramification of that was going to be. And what it meant was the minute he left and he was going to go tell the other people, the phones in the office lit up insanely. It was pandemonium. The, the head of the network, the two heads of the network were on their way to try to talk him out of it. The studio chairman was on his way. Everybody, the golf carts were screeching all over the lot. Like it was bananas. And we were like, well, you know, should we be thinking about a season finale? And no, do not. We're going to change his mind. I mean, we're talking about like hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, like a billion-dollar property. And then the Charles brothers sort of they came down from I think they lived up you know up northern California, and they came down and we sort of sat there and talked about it. And and they um, you know they know they known Ted for a long time. They knew him. They they made him a star. And they said, look, this is something he really he's it's like a personal thing. It's not we're not going to look. He was already the highest paid guy in TV. We're not going to. It's not that's not an amount of not a matter of money. And so then we sat with them because it was their show and, and we sat with them trying to craft a nice finish and they did a really cool thing. They went back to all the other teams that had run the show before and they offered them an episode for the last sort of six and which was kind of sweet because we got like there were a lot of people that I had never met, you know, who were before my time that I got to meet and um, and so we all crafted it together and they were pretty, they, they were like, look, they, they just kept saying to us, we want you to keep running this show. We want you to run to the very end, but we want to write the finale ourselves, which is, you know, absolutely appropriate. And uh, but we all want to break the stories together, so we did. And it was like it was kind of like it was sort of bittersweet because you know, one thing that happened actually, uh, Ted decided he didn't want to do a twelfth season in December, and the season ends uh, usually wrapped in March. So we had a bunch of episodes left to do. And then, of course, we added more because it was the last season, so we weren't going to finish until probably end of April, beginning of May. And so near one of the last episodes, we were sitting in... I mean, we were shooting a show. And, like, in the last episodes, like, everybody comes, right? Everyone. Like, it's a big deal to stand on the stage. Like, basically, the, the GE board of directors was there because GE owned NBC at the time, and all the brats were there, all the big agents in town. It's like, a most amazing power cluster ever. And I'm sitting, leaning against the rail, 
watching as uh, as they reposition the cameras, and Ted's sitting next to me, and he puts his arm on my shoulder. He goes, "So how are you guys doing? Are you guys okay? You know, everything good?" And, yeah, great, Ted. And he said he gestures to it. He goes, "Yeah, this is still fun, isn't it?" Yes, yeah, it's, it's still fun, Ted. And he said, oh, "You know, I bet we, I could do another year." <laughs> I say, "Are you serious?" Because there are people over there, and I point to all these you know execs who would kill, kill for one more year. <laughs> Are you serious, or, or you just want to go and just kind of screw with them and tell them you're thinking about it, and then just quickly get in your car and drive away? And he laughed. Was that? Nah, I guess not. It's probably probably better just to, just to stick with this. But there was a moment there, you know. <laughs> so so it ends, and now you have to find a new job. But you must have been in demand because you were coming off running a legendary show. Yeah. Look, I mean, yes. I mean, the, the, um, everybody wants the next one. Everybody wants. Um, whatever the next uh, big hit show is, right? Um, and so everybody, when, 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 some, when a, sh- a show like Cheers ends, there's like this giant scattering. There's like a big bang, you know, like all these different stars go out in different galaxies. And uh, so we, we stayed in our, basically in our office at the Paramount, writing and producing TV shows for another 12, 13 years. Now, what were some of the shows you uh, produced? We did a lot of like, well, they were short-lived. None of them quite made the, uh, you know, the, the, the impact of a cheers, I would say. But put it this way, they didn't really cause me any tax trouble. Okay. Um, but uh, we did one with Bob Newhart called George and Leo, Bob Newhart and Judd Hirsch, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, we did how, one called, how, does, how does a show like that not go? You have two amazing talents. Yeah. You have you guys who are skilled writers. That always cracks me up when there's... Like someone was on my show and they were on a show with Harvey Corman and Cloris Leachman and I think it was Mike Haggerty and he's and it was this great crew and it didn't take off and it's like how does a show with Bob Newhart, Judd Hirsch and you guys not take off? Was it bad time slots or just what happens? Well, the thing about that show is that um, it's not so much a bad time slot; it was sort of a bad time, and that. Um, you know, they, they, they combine the, the, the age of Bob Newhart and someone as one of the guys in the network told me the problem is the age of our two stars together is greater than all of the friends combined. Right. Like we we're just an older <laughs> show, right? In our demographic, we had a lot of people watching, but the demographic at the time was not that valuable um, to our advertisers. And so the show, you know, we got we got in, in incredible support from CBS from the network. Uh, and they were all great, but it was just, it just, and I had a wonderful, we had a great lunch with the guy now who runs CBS, who's running CBS then, who's like a super stand-up, very blunt guy, but incredibly honest and direct and respectful, and he said, listen, this is a great show, I love it, I love watching it, but I can't, I can't go to New York to the upfront sales, to the ad sellers and the ad buyers, and have the show, because it's too old, and I need to, need to get younger. And you know what? What can you say? Like that—that is—that was the reality. It's a little less the reality now, I think, um, but mostly because the audience, the expectations of these networks are much lower, right? They don't—they don't get enough. They don't expect to get a twenty chair or a fifteen chair. They're lucky to get a seven chair or an eight chair or a nine chair. Um, and so, you know, we were getting a twelve or fourteen, I think, chair, and uh, that just wasn't enough. You know, it was, there weren't, weren't enough young people watching. Now, as you're writing these TV shows. And creating, you also started writing political satire. Yeah. Now, yeah. How, how did well, that happen? Well, I was a friend of mine was like giving a speech at a at a at a at a conference in D.C. 
1993, January of 1993, so it was like about a week before the first Clinton inaugural. And I was there, and uh, the guy, it was, it was an editor of a magazine called National Review, was there, named John O'Sullivan, and he sort of stops me in the hallway, and he says, uh, you should write, a, you should write a, a humor column for us. And I said, okay, you know, because I'm vaguely, vaguely on the right, center right, I guess I would call myself. And um, so I started doing that. I started writing, and I started, I did every, every it was sort of a, a Al Gore kind of parody. It was letters from Al Gore to his friend who's in the rainforest. And so Al Gore is like saying, talking about what's going on in, in the world um, from his perspective. Uh, I was like the first person to be being, making fun of Al Gore professionally. And so I did that, and I did that in every, every issue, and I kept doing it. And then when the Clinton administration was over, I did it. Uh, for Bush, and now I'm doing it for Obama. I've been doing it, my God, I've been doing it a long time. Um, and I've always enjoyed it. Like, it's a different different kind of, uh, different part of your brain you use uh, to do that. The political, you know, and then, of course, I branched out a little bit of commentary and stuff. I don't, I don't do it that much, because, again, that, that, that seems like, home, I'd have to do a lot of homework, I'd have to read right. and know stuff, <laughs> and I don't really want to do that. That seems like, you know, you got to pay me more, I always said to them, like, you got to pay me more money if you wanted to, like, have you know research now now, Uh, what what do the article i mean what like with obama what are some of the topics you hit with him and who's he writing to well i i I changed it up the minute that al gore was out i changed the whole format so i kind of write different different uh, formats for you know and not every week but I, i repeat some formats um with obama it's really hard because he's just not very funny and i mean as a character and he's so i mean He's a hard guy to make fun of, but you can make fun of the people around him really well. Like, uh, because the people, especially the people who, who, who are his sort of acolytes and worshippers, like, you can really, th- those people are really hilarious. In fact, I found myself recycling jokes uh, that I used to make fun of the people who worship Obama and recycle them just a little bit for the people who worship Trump. <laughs> this is the same kind of like, you know, weird, great leader kind of madness. Um, that it, it, it makes me laugh anyway. Now, did you watch the debates? The debate? I did. Now, I did. Now, what's your what was what's your input on it? What what did, what did you think? I was I was tweeting during it the whole time, and because I just tweet, I, I my tweets I don't tweet anything mean. I basically one of them was I basically said if Trump does not win president, he'll be the next KFC colonel in the commercials. And, <laughs> I think I saw that and stuff like that. But what what did what was your take on them? And did do you live tweet during these things because you you do political satire? You are a comedy writer. Do you ever sit there and just start tweeting during this stuff? Uh, I only if I do, it's only a, a joke that I think is not partisan or not um, or or not uh, to make a point. Like I don't I don't like to me that's just never funny. It, it seems like you're just talking to the you're, you're preaching to the choir, right? Um, like, like if you're a Hillary Clinton supporter and you can't laugh at a Hillary Clinton joke, then like you're not. It's not really worth doing it. Um, I, I, I found I was surprised. I was surprised at how bad he was. Uh, Trump was. I, I thought that he, um, you know, or Stuart Stevens said he, you know, he came to a 90 minute show with 20 minutes of material, and that was a mistake. And and he didn't, you know, in, in a weird way, I feel like he's a guy that we can all psychologize or psychologicalize, whatever it is, head shrink. Because he keeps talking about her stamina, and she doesn't have the stamina, and she doesn't have what it takes, or the stamina. And the truth is, he ran out of gas. He's an old man who's carrying too much weight, and he ran out of gas like after, I think, minute 20. And you could see it in his face. And he was bored or tired, and he wasn't prepared. And the strange thing about it is that, like, 
I don't expect him to have detailed policy positions because he's Trump. It's not, that's not his thing. But he didn't really – he missed opportunities to talk about her legal trouble and her lies that are clearly lies. And, and he missed the opportunity to keep hammering in that last hour that he seemed to be drifting and lose control of it. He he, 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 he he missed the opportunity to keep saying over and over again, if you vote for her, nothing will change. And he needed that. That's what he needs to do to close that deal. And um, instead, he just reopened all sorts of old negatives for him. And it makes me think that this guy is in over his head right now. And and um, it just isn't, you know, isn't the person that his supporters want him to be. He's just not that candidate. Well, I'm going to ask you. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 no. Anyway, that, so that, that's kind of what I thought. I mean, look, there's another debate, so he kind of roaring. That first debate, look, Obama lost the first debate pretty decisively when he was up against Romney, and we all know what happened after that. So um, he could come back, but there's a certain, like, craziness to when, to what happened, that he seems to be unaware of it, he seems to be delusional. That's not good. It's not, it doesn't show a candidate in control. And that's kind of supposed to be his brand. Like, I'm in charge. And he just was not last night at all. It must amaze you with the numbers they got because that's like that's like the old TV numbers. You know what I mean? Like you were talking yeah, about yeah. when you wrote for Cheers and stuff. Like I looked, I think the old MASH episode got uh, 115 million viewers. I mean, it's just amazing that, you know, because a lot of times people say that, you know, voters are somewhat apathetic. We don't have a lot of people who don't, you know, aren't voting. But to get that many viewers, you must have just been like, man, this is like the old Cheers days. Well, you know, I was like, I was actually, I was on a plane back to LA. I was leaving New York. I was in Newark Airport, and uh, the plane was started boarding around ten o'clock. So I saw, uh, I saw most of it, and then I saw the rest of it on my phone while we were waiting to take off. And everyone was watching it. Everyone, there were everyone in the United Airport Lounge, people on the in the concourse, every bar. They were watching, clustered around. You could see there was Monday Night Football and another something and something and then and the, the debate. And everyone was clustered around the part of the bar that had the TV showing the debate. People are actually interested in this. I don't know whether they're interested because they wanted to see a train wreck or because, because he's a, you know Trump is extremely entertaining and they wanted to be – who knows? But um, it was good TV. Um, and I, I think that was you know bad for him. I don't think, I think it would be better if nobody saw it. But it was good TV and – you know, I'm not sure that says anything good about America that we're tuning into this debate because we want to see a fun show. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, I don't know I, I, it's hard for me not to keep flashing on that movie Idiocracy and think uh, maybe that wasn't a comedy. Exactly. So now, now with your writing, you also you've contributed to like the Wall Street Journal and LA Times yeah. at times. How does that come up, and what do you write for them? Is it the same kind of things you wrote for? the National Review, or what kind of articles were you writing for them, and how did they find you? Did your agent send you out to them? Or? No, oh God, no, like, the money is like, the, my agent wouldn't, wouldn't even, I mean, I wouldn't even deign to, like, uh, send my agent his 10% cut, which I think he's legally entitled to, because uh, he would just look at me like, are you crazy? Um, the, the, uh, you know what, you, you start writing in that world, and people sort of see you, and I wrote a bunch of book reviews, and did a bunch of, like, I did a bunch of editorials for Wall Street Journal years ago, and I occasionally write for them. I mean, look, I write humor, so um, every now and then I'll write an essay and they'll reprint it. But um, you know, the, the problem with Wall Street Journal in general is not that funny. Like, uh, and I, 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 I say to the New York Times, they used to have humor. Like, they used to have a humor columnist on, on all these big news, newspapers, like Russell Baker, or Art Bookwald, or people like that. 
and they just don't do it anymore. I don't know why. I really don't. They, they should. I wish they would do it. I, listen, if they if somebody offered me a humor column in a big newspaper, I would take it in a second. I would in a second. I would take it because I I kind of feel like I feel like that that's what we're missing. You know. Well, but, yeah. I mean, that's, maybe that's just me. So okay, so so all you're writing now. How did you end up writing the book, Conversations with an Agent? How did that come up? I mean, did you sit there and someone tell you to write a book, or did you have an idea? I mean, what? Well, did it a friend, a friend, yeah, a friend of mine was writing was uh, running a, a weird magazine a newspaper journal in London called Modern Review, and he a friend he was a friend of a friend, and he called me up and said, "Listen, I write this thing. Would you write us a piece?" And I said, "Sure." So I just kind of like, but it was like, I forgot. I said yes, and he really needed it, and so I. I basically sent it in. I wrote it at like two in the morning, and just faxed it to him, and thought, "Ah, oh, uh, this is a, I, I hate this." But because sometimes the things you do at two in the morning, when you just you no longer have any resistance, they tend to be sort of more, a little more free. And so he just printed it. So give me another one. So I just kept doing it, and uh, there were weird little diaries of what was going on in my life in show business, and weird little inside Hollywood stuff. So I just did enough of them that his agent, who represented the 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 newspaper called me up and said, listen, if you just put all these into a package, that's a book. And I went, okay, I'll do that. You know, I guess I'm susceptible to all kinds of suggestions. So I kind of stitched it all together and then made it a book and published by, it was published by um, Faber and Faber in late nineties. And then I did another one and, uh, and that was it. So I haven't done another book in a while, but I did, I did those two books. I got another book coming out. I think I've got to kind of work on it, but it's, but I have a book idea anyway. Is it going to be the same as these books, or what's what's good? No, you know, I'm, I'm sort of like I think I've plumbed the depths of my. I mean, I also do this weekly commentary on the on on the local public radio station here about show business, and um, it's a podcast. So I, I kind of feel like I'm already doing more than enough writing about show business. So this is really about. Um, I think the, the working title I'm using is the virtues of white bread. Like the virtues of like what we've lost as everything has uh, civilization and our culture has fallen apart. Like there used to be a time when guys would like go to the baseball game with hats and ties on, and that there was a certain amount of like public decorum and and, and even blandness that people kind of respected and cultivated. And thought that well, that was appropriate for the public sphere, and now we're just you know people get on planes and tank tops and uh, women are wearing these yoga pants to the you know. Zoo. I mean, it's crazy. Like, there's a certain like, the white bread culture. I don't mean white. I just mean the white bread. This kind of solid middle class American blandness was what you know won two world wars and destroyed the Soviet Union and built the most amazing economic engine the world has ever seen. Lifted more people out of poverty in in a hundred years than any other system. Tamed the West. You know, built jet engines. Crisscross the nation with the railroads and you know, cars and stuff, and uh, and we just kind of threw it away so that we could all tweet. You know, it's crazy. You know, it's funny you say about the airlines because you know for a while I was before my girlfriend moved out here, I was going back east once a month, so I flew. Yeah. I flew a lot, and you're right. Like you know, my parents always you know when we were growing up, they said you know if you fly, dress nice, you know, do this. Yeah. And then I get I mean, the funniest thing is I was I got on and I took the shuttle and it was one of those twenty dollars shuttles, so it made like nine stops to LAX. And this guy right. had like the baggiest pants I've ever seen, and he had his luggage in like a garbage bag. And as he goes through, TSA makes him undo his belt, and his pants fall down. And I'm going, who's dressing like you know? It's like, I mean, I always wore 
at least nice jeans and a sweater because you're flying. Yeah. You want you want to look nice. It's like I know you want to be comfortable, but you get comfortable jeans. And you're so close to the next person next to you now. It's like, dude, you know, wear a shirt, like a I, proper shirt, it covers your shoulders. I hate yeah. when people take their shoes off, like they have bare yeah. feet, and I'm like, no, 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 we're flying. Yeah, yeah, you can loosen your laces. Your so, feet aren't swelling that much. Exactly. So, so you're doing all this, you know, writing the book, and you're doing the uh, political stuff. And now, as the TV goes through, you know, you had a few shows, you know, as you said, you know, didn't last that long. Well, then you come upon Sullivan and Son, and it's funny because yeah. I, I know Michael Platt. I used to do stand-up comedy with Mike, who was one. Oh of wow! Them. Okay. And then Gary Cannon, who's your warm-up guy, has been on the show, and Roy Wood's been on the show. But how did that? I mean, when you. How did that show come about, and was that did they put you together with Steve Byrne, or how does it happen? Like you know, you've been in the business for a long time, so you have a name, and you have all these different other projects. Do people, did the network seek you out, or how do you keep getting the gigs? And is there every time, every time you just sit there and go, you know what, I'm going to take some time off? Well, I mean, look, I don't think it doesn't work anymore that you get gigs. There are no gigs to get anymore. You, you have to make your own gig. And in this case, Steve had written, Steve Byrne, who was the star of Sullivan Sun, had written this uh, kind of a treatment slash script for a show he wanted to do. And um, uh, so, I don't know, like somehow his agents and my agents knew each other. So we all got together. We sort of talked a little bit about it. And, you know, I kept saying, look, Steve, you know, you're this guy, you're this weird dude, like your dad is Irish-American and your mom is Korean. There's something funny about that. Like, let's, let's drill down on that. And so we just basically kind of met every few months when he was in town, and we would talk more about it. And then once we, we sort of had an idea, we met more often, and we just pounded out a script. And we didn't tell anybody we were doing it, and we didn't really talk about it. We just did it. And then, and then we went around and said, does anybody want this show? And... Some people wanted a version of it. Some people wanted it a little bit more like this, a little more like that. But TBS was like, yeah, no, we want this. Let's do this. And I said, okay, look, it's going to be a show set in a bar with a bunch of different ethnicities and races and ages. And people are going to talk as close to what they should talk about in a bar. They're going to talk stuff. They're going to make dirty jokes and jokes about people's you know, ethnicities and, and do it like a real neighborhood. And they said, fine, go ahead. Just go ahead and do it. So... So we did. I mean, it was really it, the, the 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 lesson there was just don't ask for permission. Just 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 keep doing it. And um, if you have a really clear idea, which this was, it just it just kind of it just kind of snapped and like snapped together. So um, that's kind of how that happened. I mean, it wasn't a it wasn't a deal. Most things right now don't happen that way. They don't like well. Here's a deal, and you want we want you to fill it. It's more like we don't. I mean, if you're executives of the network, like, we have no idea what anyone wants ever in the world we're totally baffled please come and bring us something that you think people will want to watch and so that's kind of what where tbs was they had a little bit of scripted comedy not much they had a lot of reruns the big bang theory reruns were doing huge for them and uh we just brought them something like we did better than any scripted show they had ever had and i think had since um up till now so you know we helped i think we helped open that network up to uh, you know, uh, being a scripted show, scripted channel, which I think you know, it's kind of cool. Now, were they? I know, I know. A lot of times, people say network is always sending notes, sending notes, sending notes. Was it someone because TBS was newer to stand up? I mean, was newer to sitcoms, stuff like that. Did they, were they executives? Were they involved in your scripts, or did you sit there and pretty much have free reign? 
No, it looks like they're involved because they're, they're it's their network and their number and their money. So they get to like they get to participate. Um, they were really great. I mean, like look, look the, the 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 challenge for an executive is. Uh, is, is to remind the people doing the show of what the show really is supposed to be. Like, what's the show that you came to me and you told me you want to do a show about X, and now we're doing it, but the story you're telling right now is about Y and Z and A and C. Like, we go back to X. And that usually is incredibly valuable because when you're in the trenches, you kind of forget sometimes. You're like you're chasing different stories and different characters and different ideas, and you forget what the show is, what's the heart of the show, and and that that is the that that I think is the most important and kind of the hardest job for an executive to do is to remind you like no 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 you're remember what your show is about, not what I'm telling you it's about, but what you told me it's about. Like, and I think that's 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 always the best possible version. And then every now and then they say, "Hey, listen, you know, you you can't say those three words." Or, you know, I know you think it's funny uh, to make fun of pedophiles, but it's not funny. You can't. Um, little stuff like that helps. Oh, she can't smoke. You know, uh, she can have a cigarette in her hand. She can light a cigarette, but she can't put the cigarette to her lips. Like stuff like that. Like that's the sort of housekeeping stuff. But mostly the really good executives. And they were really good at TBS. I really liked them. They would. Um, they would just remind you of what the show was supposed to be. That like this is what you you know this is the show you're making, and don't get don't get distracted. Which I think is really valuable. And now, did you have any uh, say in the casting? Because you know, Brian Doyle Murray was was he, he was great. I mean, he was great. Yeah, he was perfect for that role. He just the curmudgeon who's who's you know what did he have racist views? He just said what he thought, and but you yeah. liked you liked him. You didn't sit there and go, oh, he's awful. He was sort of sort of that Archie Bunker type thing. Did you have any? Saying who would get yeah. cast? I mean, I'd worked I'd worked with Brian before, so he was uh, you know, so he was my first choice there. And um, yeah, I mean, you you know, when you run a show, you cast it. Like you, you they, the, the the network helps you out. They consult and they give you as many uh, you know hands up as possible, and they you know they make as many suggestions as possible, and they try and they make the deals, obviously. Um, but you know, casting, running the show, writing the stories, all that stuff—that's the job of the showrunner. That's what you got to do. Uh, and you do it in in collaboration and consultation with a bunch of other people, um, but you're ultimately you got to do it. And we were like, really lucky, you know. We didn't really have any any casting issues with that show. Um, they let us do kind of what we wanted, and every now and then, I think they had, they had one or two really good ideas that were Dan Dan Laria. They were like Dan Laria could would would would, love, would do this great. And, uh, and he was. He was fantastic. And uh, he was never on any list. So, like, damn, Mario would never do this. But they were, they had already, like, talked about something, and he wanted to do a comedy, and he wanted to stick close to home. And, you know, it, it was a good show for those guys because they did 10 episodes. That was it. And we kind of packed them all close together so that you could really kind of say, okay, the next three, 90 days, I know where I'm going to be. But after that, I'm free. And, um, and so it's a really good gig for guys like Dan and Jody Long and Christine and even the stand-ups because they're like – and Brian Murray because it allows you to plan your life a little bit better. Now it was on. It was canceled after the third season. Yeah, we did three seasons, and then they sort of went in a different direction. New new management team over there. A new, you know, that's what happens when you get a new team in there. Um, we made a bunch of shows. We made about thirty five shows, which was a lot of fun. And and you know, when you're on a cable network like that, the hard part is like they don't really. They don't. The third season is really kind of a. The, they don't usually go four. If they go four, they don't go five. Um, it's just kind of the the drawback of that kind of a that kind of a schedule. 
Uh, it's too bad because we could. Have, I mean, we could still be making it. We could make a thousand of them. Uh, it's one of those shows that like you just just keep just keep chugging along. Yeah, how did that? I mean, does that bum you out? Because it was you had good you had good uh, chemistry. It seems the cast was great, and I, I used to do stand up. You know, stand ups are just fun guys. I mean, did it? They're nuts. But does, yeah. does it bum you out when you have a good product and because there's a change direction? Didn't someone else take over TBS or something like that or executive change? Yeah. So, so the, new team. Yeah, they, they you know they, they want their they want to put their own imprint on it, which I totally again I totally get. Yeah, it sort of bums you out. I mean, like because you work really hard at it, and you also you develop if you do a good job, you you are developing this camaraderie with your team and your cast. You don't want to you kind of don't want to say goodbye to those people. You kind of want to keep working with them. And I think that's the, that's usually the, the 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 worst part of it was that like well you know it was fun it was fun to do they were fun people to work with it was funny and the audience liked it and um, you know why, why cancel it why not just leave it on and put on new show put on different shows that's fine to put on different shows but it, it's really that's what I don't understand it's really expensive to launch a series. And when you do a ten episode show and it's on in the summer, you're basically launching a new series every summer. So if you have an audience and you have some traction, you know, just keep doing it. Just keep doing it, and then add more. Like I, I get, you, they, I get the TBS wanted to do more comedy. That made sense. Add more to it. Um, but they keep a lot of these guys keep thinking like, no, I'm going to put on a hit and it's going to be a giant monster hit, and that's what's going to create my network and the truth is that that doesn't really ever happen you have a couple of shows that are doing well that are bringing an audience and that you that that's your launching pad you know i i actually don't really think that way i actually have a solomon and son t-shirt and a script because me and my girlfriend before she moved out she would visit gary cannon who does warm-up got us uh in there and he gave us a shirt and a script and she was all happy she's like she's like i don't want this shirt I said, I'll take the shirt. Give me, give me a side of fits. <laughs> yeah. You take the script, and she was all excited because she was visiting, and it was a new thing. So, so now I'm going to ask you this. Now, you know, you talked about how, like, in Sullivan and Son, where, like, the cigarette, they can't bring it to the lips and stuff like that. How do you think, like, with Cheers, because Cheers, people were always drinking. How has yeah. TV changed? I mean, everyone says the language has changed. As you see, there's more language in years ago in NYPD Blue. We saw Dennis Franz's ass. But how has, as it for the, for the sitcom, how has it change for what you could get away with back then and what you can't get away with now and how does that does any of that surprise you well what surprises me of course is like there's a lot of things you can say now language you can use like you can get dirty dirty words you can use and there's like a whole bunch of sexual stuff you can do um but you can't do you can't do stuff that people really talk about or they get they get nervous about it. You can't do you know stuff about race or stuff about uh, class or it's it's amazing. It's like you can't. There's a whole bunch of things you're, you're not allowed to talk about, sort of politically correct in the politically correct arena. That to me, it's so strange about it is that because people in life talk about this stuff in real life, they have these conversations, and there's nothing. I mean, I don't know why we're not allowed to have them on television. Instead, you know, the reality is in TV. Um, in, I mean, sorry. In real life, you don't really have that many crazy um, sexual conversations or crazy sexual situations. What you mostly do is sit around with your friends and you know make uh, offensive jokes uh, about you know uh, Italians or whatever, like what, whatever it is, right? 
and 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 we don't address that at all on television. And it's so strange because it's what's happening in the world, and it's happening like in this major way. I mean, like it, it is not wrong to interpret the debate last night as the debate as a clash between the you know the population of smarty pants people and the population of you know not so smarty pants people the the, the people who feel like they're on the outs and um, we don't TV is supposed to be where this stuff is described and you know made funny or whatever and we just don't do it and it's amazing it's, amazing. it's like the, the number of things you can say on TV that are dirty and like would be are kind of embarrassing actually if you you know, say them in front of your mom. Right. Um, those things are those things are perfectly okay. That, that, that's a that's a that, that's considered edgy, cool. But if you actually have a conversation about something real that's really happening in real life to to, to real people, uh, oh my god, they like they're like, oh, you can't say that. Now, quick questions with wrap up in a little bit. Sure. What martini shot? How did that all come about? Well, that was like I was at a party, and the woman who was running, I was getting I was getting yelled at at a party. This lady uh, who ran the, the KCRW, which is the local public radio station, she said, I want you to do a commentary every week. And um, and she was, she, I think she was, she, what she ultimately wanted me to do was political commentary. Because um, she thought that would be good. And I just told her, no way. I'm, not, I, I'm on it like in the afternoon, like drive time, during all things considered, like like if I'm driving home and listening to the news, I don't want some random person gonna give me in three minutes of his or her stupid political views. I want a little fun. Like give me, give me some ice cream, give me some candy, you know. Um, and so I said, I'll just tell funny stories about show business, which I don't think she was that crazy about. But then I did it for a couple of times. She said, Oh, I like that. Okay, keep doing that, because the truth is that people like funny. They like just tell me a little funny story for three and a half minutes or four minutes, and then and then go away. That's kind of what, that's kind of, I think that's a version of entertainment that people can really get behind. So I just started doing it. I started doing it in, I mean, almost 12, 12, no, not almost, 12 and a half years ago, every week. And it's kind of fun. It's like weird therapy. And as I did it, the more I did it, the more honest I became about stuff. And I find that the more honest I am, the funnier it is, the less, I think, I less the, the easier it is, right? If you simply make a decision early on to be funny and to be honest, um, it kind of re- it kind of makes things a lot easier. Now they're they're three and a half to four minutes. Yeah, it's like three and a half. I think it's three and a half minutes now. Three so, minutes forty seconds. I think. How do you how and, do you uh, edit it? How do you get? I mean, how do you figure out how much you're going to put in that little bit of time? Well, now now I know it's like it's like six hundred words or seven hundred words if I talk really fast. And and so I record them at the studio. Or I record them when I'm in New York. I record them at this place in New York, and uh, they just put them on. They just dump it on it's like yeah I just do it fast and I have a system now so I kind of know where on the page I'm I gotta be I gotta wrap this up but but my problem is that I, I go through the week and I think oh god I should talk about that and I sometimes forget to write it down so there are there are moments where I'm sort of staring at a you know blinking cursor and thinking oh my god I have I have nothing what am I gonna do um, and that, that's usually when I have to make something up now where can people find them at well, you can, if you're in LA, you can listen to KCRW on Wednesday afternoons. But you can also find it on iTunes. KCR, just go to KCRW, or just 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 type in Martini Shot, and it's on iTunes and it's on it's on SoundCloud and I think a couple and, and Downcast. 
Oh, you can't miss me. I'm everywhere. You are everywhere. I'm multimedia. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what's what's up next for you? Uh, well, I'm hoping that I'm gonna I'm gonna do a, a half hour comedy, which I just was talking to um, a colleague about um, an hour ago, and I got one more meeting over at a studio about another project, which is a slightly different kind of thing. It's more of a one hour project. I mean, it's more of one. It would be a one hour project. That something I've been thinking about for a while, and it, you know, it's complicated because all of these sort of one hour shows on networks now are either really super dark, like you know, we are hunting a serial killer. Uh, or their weird sci-fi fantasy stuff or superhero stuff, which I don't do. And this is like a little bit more sort of grounded, kind of a cop show, but a little bit more, um, a little more real and lighter, and a little bit trying to get some humor into it. Um, which you know, maybe, maybe there's an appetite for it, maybe there isn't. I'm not quite sure, but I feel like audiences want it. I mean, look, you know, it's been past 10, 15 years of TV. It's been the year of the anti, the, the era of the antihero. And, you know, Walter White and Tony Soprano and all these people who have been basically so, you know, evil people that you still kind of root for, um, or, or dangerously psychopathic, dangerously mentally deranged, morally compromised people. Um, and now we have you know two of those people running for president. <laughs> One of those people is going to be president. And I kind of feel like starting in January, people aren't going to want to see that. They got, they already got that. It's on the news. Show me something fun. Give me something not quite so depressing. And so there's got to be a way to sort of swing back to a slightly, what, we, what they call light one hour, but sort of a slightly lighter way of looking at the world. Well, Everything would, doesn't have to be so sort of dark. You know? that, that would be a new venture for you, an hour program, right? Yeah, well, I did a version of, uh, I did a version of that uh, for ABC last year and uh, as a script, and they liked it. They just were like, well, you know, it's maybe, we don't know where it would go. You know, we have a very tight schedule. They have a very, very specific brand, and um, I mean, they liked it. They thought it was like they may call me up tomorrow and say we want to do it. Uh, but I, I, you know, I'll swing for the fence there. I'll try to, you know, I, I still think there's a there's an appetite for it and a broad appetite for it if you do it right and it's funny and smart. Um, you know, everything doesn't again. Everything doesn't have to be some this dark serial killer story. You know, I feel like I've seen that a million times. Well, you know, I, I want to thank you for coming on. This is great. Um, now, give the people, how can people get in touch with you? Your, your tweet, what's your Twitter handle? Oh, it's RCBL. Really easy. And now, do you tweet a lot? I do tweet a lot. I do. I do tweet. I mean, I don't, I mean, I'll go through a phase where I'll be sitting and suddenly I'll be tweeting. I'll do 20 tweets. Uh, and every now and then I'll have an idea and I'll tweet it. Uh, I'm not as regular as it because I'm not in front of a desk the way some people, some of my major power Twitter friends are. Um, but I do like it. It's, it's a fun medium. It's like, if you can really, it's good, but... You got 140 characters. Make it funny. Make it work. Exactly. Well, so people follow him on Twitter, and also go, uh, well, go, go IMDb him. Go to Rob Lowe. <laughs> and just, no, seriously, could you check out the old shows? If you're not, you know, check out the old Cheers. Watch Cheers. Who's involved with Cheers? You know, it's a classic show. So check him out and follow him on Twitter. Also follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website. I have uh, 554 episodes up there. www.coopertalk.net. And you can email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Tell me what guests you want to get. I'm always hustling for guests. You know, if they're musicians, they're writers. You know, I I get a good little, you know, you people listen. You know what's going on. And uh, also, Words with Friends and Instagram, coopertalk1. I will play you. Instagram has a lot of uh, food pictures because you remember when I went through that health problem. Uh, with my heart, I wrote the book, Stop the Salt. So if you go Instagram, there's pictures from that book. But... Uh -oh. recipes not actually in the book but if you go to stopthesalt.com 
You can buy the cookbook. It's 120 recipes. There's no pictures to sit there and intimidate you. There's not a long list. There's not a long because you know how a guy's getting. There's not a long yeah, list of right. ingredients. If you don't have cumin, don't worry. I didn't put cumin in there. So you can buy it on Barnes and Noble or Amazon. But if you buy it at StopTheSalt.com, I'll sign it for you, and I make more money. Nice. So please follow Good me deal. on Twitter. Follow Rob. Don't forget. Go to uh, fourhangovers.com. That's fourhangovers.com. Type in Cooper and get 20% off. Or if you have a really bad hanger, go to CVS and get it. So anyway, people, I want to thank you for listening. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week.